What happens when you put a well-sharpened tool in the hand of a skilled worker to do an important job? Well, in this case, the job is spreading the word about Jesus. The worker is the Holy Spirit, and the well-sharpened tool is the church at Antioch. Keep listening now as Dr. James Boyce tells the story of the very first time a church ever sent out a missionary. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The church at Antioch was the right church at the right time. It was well-established, mature, and diverse, and God chose this church to send two of its members to travel and preach the gospel. Let's listen now together to Dr. Boyce. No matter how you outline the book of Acts, it's perfectly evident, evident to everybody, I think, that when we come to the 13th chapter of this book, we enter upon a new stage in the expansion of the gospel. Here for the first time, a solid church sends out missionaries and does so in obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That word missionary has to do with sending. It comes to us from the Latin word to send, mito, mitere, and that if you remember how you did those things back in your Latin classes, those of you who are younger haven't done that, but the older ones study Latin, you know how it goes. Mito, mitere, misi, misum. I see the doctors nodding. Misi, misum. That's where you get mission from. It's one who is sent. And the mission of the church is the sending of people by the church at the leading of the Holy Spirit into other areas of the world where the name of Christ is not known and God in Christ is not worshipped. Now, that's what happened here for the first time. We read in these opening verses that the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then it says, So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. So there you have the beginning of the missionary era. Now, I want to see a number of things about this. Any event of this nature, of this magnitude, is obviously of great importance. So we need to study it to see what it has to tell us about how the work should be done. I want you to see the base from which it began, the, the church out of which this great movement came. I want you to see the work of the Holy Spirit in calling equipping, sending, and blessing. And then finally, I want you to see the task that was set before them as it's illustrated in the work that took place in Cyprus, this first missionary target, this target province of the Roman Empire. But the place to begin is with the church. Now, that's important because the church was the tool God used. God is sovereign in all affairs of this world and all things besides, and therefore God does what God will do. Nobody's going to frustrate God. But God does what God does through tools. And in the case of evangelization and missionary work, the tool that God uses is His people, the church. And here we have a great example of a church, a strong church, believing church, an active church, a seeking church. I want you to see the things about this church that emerge just from these few verses that introduce it. First of all, notice that it was an established church. This wasn't a fly-by-night church. It's a church we've already seen. You go back to the 11th chapter, you find there how this church came into being. We're told in 
the 11th chapter, that a number who were scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and that some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch, and there began to speak to the Greeks as well. So here we have an account back in chapter 11 of the founding of this church. A number of years have passed, which important things have happened. And during all this time, now by our way of thinking, not a long, long period of time, but a period of several years, this church has become soundly established. There was a time, we saw it when we were studying the early chapters, when the pillar saints in Jerusalem, the leaders, at least those who thought they were, wondered if anything sound could really take place in a Gentile community. They were worried about it, and so they sent people up there to investigate. They did, and they came back, and they said that everything was all right. That church really was doing well. And so that's what you have, first of all, a church that is well-established, well-based. church is floundering, a church that is inadequate even to its own needs, a church that doesn't know where it's coming from or where it's going or what its task is or what it believes, well, a church like that isn't likely to be of much use in the missionary enterprise. But here was a church, new, relatively new, and yet which in a very short time had become very sound indeed. So that's the first thing. And secondly, it was a church that had been well taught already alluded to that when I've talked about it being established because it's through the teaching in part that the church was established. And yet this is made very clear in the section. Notice how chapter 13 begins. In the church of Antioch there were prophets and teachers. It's plural in each case, more than one prophet and more than one teacher. Then there's a colon and it begins to list them. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now you count them up and you see that that's five. I don't know that that list is exhaustive. That list might merely be a suggestion of who the prophets and teachers are, but I suggest it is at least setting before us those who are very active and very effective in the teaching of this church. Wouldn't it be marvelous to have a church that was pastored and taught by such prophets and teachers as Barnabas, son of comfort, who was so effective in the missionary enterprise himself, and Simeon, and Lucius, and Manaean, and, last but not least, a man of very great intellect, a very powerful teacher, as well as a missionary in the church, this man Saul, about whom the second half of the book is concerned. So that's the second thing. You had an established church, and you have a church that had been very thoroughly taught. As a matter of fact, when we were reading about it earlier, you'll recall that Barnabas, when he came to the church, recognized the need for teaching, and searching about in his mind for somebody that could help him in the task, he thought of Saul, and he went all the way up to Turkey to get him in Paul's hometown of Tarshish, and he brought him back because he knew that this was the man that could establish the church with the kind of teaching that it needed. And so you have that as well. Now, thirdly, it was a very mixed church. What I need to say is it was an integrated church, though I'm sure they didn't use that word there. And when I use the word integrated, it means integrated in a far broader sense than we normally think about it here. When we talk about integration in this country, we think of an integration of black and white, and that was included. But it wasn't only that. It was an integration of those who presumably were from lower levels of society, the disadvantaged, perhaps they were slaves, many of them, because At any given time, about half of those living in the Roman Empire were slaves, slaves to the other half. 
And in any community, the slaves did most of the work, and the gospel tended to spread among the slaves. So there must have been slaves, but at the same time as we read this, there was at least one, and perhaps others, a very high station. And there were those who were very poorly educated, and there were those who were very well educated, and there were Greeks, and there were Jews. So this church had within itself a collection of all these various diverse groupings of the Roman Empire. Groupings, I might add, which in the Roman Empire had very little to do with one another. Greeks didn't much like the Romans. The Romans didn't much like the Greeks. The Jews didn't much like anybody. The rich despised the poor. The poor hated the rich, and so on. The educated looked down on those who were uneducated, but not in the church at Antioch. It's interesting just to look at these names. These five names tell us an enormous amount about the church. There's Barnabas, first of all. We know who he was. He was a Levite. That's a priest, a Jew. But he didn't come from Jerusalem. He came from Cyprus, and so he was a Jew of the diaspora. I would mean a Jew who was very much in touch with Greek culture, perhaps very sympathetic to it. But that's who Barabbas was. Simeon was called Niger. Now, Niger means black. And people have surmised, I think, on very sound grounds that this was a man of black skin. He was a Negro. And he was in the church. It was Lucius, Lucius of Cyrene. Now, if you remember back, the verse I read a few moments ago from the 11th chapter, we're told that it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene who went to Antioch and began there to speak to Greeks. So here we have a man, a leader in the church, Lucius of Cyrene, mentioned now just several years later, presumably, I think, very sound basis. Presumably, we can say this was one of the men who went there to found the church. So this was a missionary. Lucius, his name, incidentally, is a Latin name. So he was brought up in a Roman culture and had that name. And then there was Manaean. Now, Manaean is a Greek form of a Hebrew name, so this man may have been Jewish or he may have been Greek, but the significant thing mentioned about him is that he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, that is Herod Antipas. He is the third of the five Herods that I was introducing last week when I was talking about the death of Herod Agrippa I. This was the Herod who had killed John the Baptist. We know a little bit about him because of some of the sordid details of his life and things that happened. This was the Herod with whom this man had been brought up. So he was a prince by position, a man of very high station who knew the Herods, knew the ruling dynasty, knew all of the people that were important in the kingdom, but here he was, a Christian associating with all the other Christians in this place. It's interesting, isn't it? These two boys brought up together. One Herod, who killed John the Baptist and became involved in the trial of Jesus Christ and gave not the slightest indication of any spiritual sensitivity to who Jesus was or any interest in him whatsoever or response. And here's this other man who was brought up with him who, by the grace of God, becomes a Christian. And here is not only a leader in the church, but is numbered among the prophets and the teachers. And then last of all, there's Saul, a former Pharisee, a rigorous Jew, an enemy of the church in his early days, but who had been turned from that and was now building up the faith which he had once sought to destroy. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Here we have a church that's established, a church that is well-taught and valued teaching, and a church that is integrated, demonstrating in the diversity of its membership the unity of all people within the body of Jesus Christ. What church would have been better equipped to go out from that place into all the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
to go to the Greeks and the Romans and the barbarians and the free, wherever they may be found, and say, the gospel is for you. And if they would say, how do you know that? They could say, you ought to see the way it functions in our church back in Antioch. Now, that's the kind of church that could be powerful in the missionary enterprise. I suppose it's obvious, but I need to point out also that this was a church that had a multiple ministry. All of the early churches had multiple ministries, as we read about them here and in Paul's letters. When Paul went to a place, he had someone with him. They preached and taught, and when they left the church behind them, they appointed leaders in the church, and it always says that when they appointed leaders, they appointed leaders, plural, that is, more than one, elders in the place is the word that is actually used. We've fallen away from that in our time. We have a pattern of establishing churches where churches are in the hands of one minister, and we say, well, he's the pastor, that's his job, let him do it, and so on. The churches are weaker because of that. Churches should have multiple ministries. At the very least, churches should use the gifts of all the members because that's why God has given the gifts. That's the way the body of Jesus Christ is intended to function. But even in the established leadership, as we would say today, the ordained leadership, there should be a plurality, at least wherever possible, and above all, when mission work is being done. We make a great mistake when we send a missionary out to a foreign field or place him in a city where he or she is isolated from other people and say, go to it, brother, go to it, sister, the Lord bless you. That's not the way it should be done. And here was a church that had a multiple ministry, and appreciated a multiple ministry, and when they dispatched their missionaries to go out and start a work elsewhere, they sent more than one. Barnabas and Saul were the official missionaries, and we're told later on in verse 5 that John was with them. That's John Mark, who was related to Barnabas, was his cousin. And so the three of them went to carry on the mission. What else can we say about this church? We're only looking here at three verses, but think all the things that are in it. It was an established church. Well, taught church, an integrated church, a church with a multiple ministry. Notice that it is also a worshiping and praying church, very active in its worship of God, this congregation. We're told in verse 2 that it's while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Sometimes churches become activistic, that is, active in a sense that excludes other things, They're so anxious to do one type of social work or another that they forget that the source of power in the ministry comes from God, and they lose contact with Him. But that was not true of this church. Oh, it was an active church. It was a church that was blazing new ground, and it did it in a glorious way. But it's a church that knew that its life came from God, and it would abandon its worship of God to its own peril. And so it's a church that knew how to worship, that is, to meet together and praise God and acknowledge Him for His attributes in a church which at the same time knew how to pray. And then finally, I've mentioned five things. Let me mention a sixth. It was a seeking church. I say it was a seeking church because of the word fasting. Sometimes when I read in the commentaries, I come across humorous things, and one person who wrote a commentary, obviously, who fasted very little, explained that, uh, of course, what fasting means is that sometimes when you're working on your sermon, you get so involved with it that you skip a meal. Well, I often do that, and if that's the case, I do fast, fast often, but that's not what this is talking about. Fasting in the Bible, whenever that's used, always means to forego food for a time in order that, in a spiritual frame of mind, giving the time to spiritual things, one might seek out God's new direction for a phase of life. 
That's what fasting always means. So here you have a church that was fasting, and I gather from that word that it was seeking. Perhaps it was a church that was seeking the role that it should play in world missions, and after all, why not? This church knew the Great Commission. The book of Acts begins with it. Those who were the early preachers of the gospel undoubtedly shared it. And here was the Apostle Paul, who at the time of his conversion had been told by God through the Holy Spirit that he was to be the missionary to the Gentiles. Years had gone by. Perhaps Paul had been talking about this, saying, I think perhaps it's time for me to get on with the task. And the church in Antioch was saying, perhaps it's time for us to do something about it. After all, people from other places brought us the gospel. We have been the benefit of others' hard work. Maybe now is the time for us to get on and do something useful. They didn't want to do it on their own. They didn't just want to take this upon themselves, but they waited upon the Lord and they sought his face. If I could reconstruct their prayers, I think they were saying, God, is a time for us to take some of those who are great leaders among us and send them away to carry the gospel to places that have not received it to those who do not know about Jesus Christ. See, it's no surprise to read that it was in a prayer meeting like that that the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So that's the first thing. Here you have a church, which is what a church should be, a tool ready, sharp, and willing for God to use. Now, the second thing, we have an emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, and that's to say upon God who uses his tool. Because if missions is to be anything, it is going to have to be God's work. You and I can sit around and say, well, there's lots of things that should be done. What will it be? And we can hold a vote and decide what we're going to do and do it. And if we do it in our own strength, nothing is going to happen. Our efforts will be just as fruitful as the efforts of Peter would have been at Pentecost if the Holy Spirit had not come. Peter would have stood up before the very people who had been instrumental in crucifying his master, would have condemned them for their sin, called them for due repentance, and not one of them would have repented. As a matter of fact, they would very likely have done to Peter what they did to Jesus. But when the Holy Spirit came, as the Holy Spirit did, and led Peter to speak, as the Holy Spirit did lead him to speak on that occasion, when Peter opened his mouth, that which a day earlier would have been utterly fruitless became fruitful. And 3,000 believed. And in the same way, here in Antioch, as these people sought the will of God, the Holy Spirit, the author of the missionary enterprise, intervened and spoke and led and, as we're going to see, blessed what these first missionaries did. Someone has called Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it's a very good title because here we see the Holy Spirit at work. I said earlier, when we first began to think about the Holy Spirit, back when we were studying the second chapter, that the single most important thing to get into our mind when we talk about the Holy Spirit is whether the Holy Spirit is a person or a power. There are lots of people who think of the Holy Spirit as a power, and we already saw one example of where that leads earlier in the book. In chapter 8, concerns Simon, the magician who saw what the early preachers were doing, Peter and the others, and who was so impressed with the power that they demonstrated through the Holy Spirit that he wanted some. He came to them and offered to buy it, because, of course, that's what he was thinking. He was thinking of it as a thing, a power that somehow they had gotten a hold of and were able to use. 
And Peter had very strong words for him. He said, you have no part in these things. You don't even understand what it is you're talking about. Repent before the judgment of God comes on you. The Holy Spirit is not a power for you to grab and use, though some think that way. On the contrary, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. And by contrast, while we think of power as something for us to seize and use, when we think of the Holy Spirit as a person, it's perfectly evident that the Holy Spirit is to get hold of us and use us. And so here you have the great contrast. In chapter 8, Simon wanting to get and use the Holy Spirit, the power as he conceived it. And here in chapter 13, the Holy Spirit getting a hold of Barnabas and Saul in order that he might use them. I noticed something interesting here, that when the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart for me, the people that he chose to have set apart were the two most gifted men in the church. Now, it's possible that we're reading a bit much into the text when we say that. We don't know much about the work of Simeon or Lucius or Menaean, but we do know, at least so far as we have any information at all, that Saul was the most effective person in all this first century of the expansion of the Christian message of the gospel. And Barnabas must have been right up there with him. Barnabas is mentioned early in the book. He's mentioned late. We see him again, certainly in the judgment of Luke, who was the historian of the early church. These were two great, outstanding men. And the point I'm making is that the Holy Spirit chose them. Doesn't that say something about the importance which God, the Holy Spirit, puts upon world missions? I know people in the church that say they don't believe in missions. They read the Bible, but they don't believe in missions. They believe in giving to the local work. They believe in supporting things they can see, but to give to mission work abroad or to send people abroad, well, let the people abroad take care of that. That's the way they think. That is not the way the Holy Spirit thinks. Moreover, the Holy Spirit doesn't just say, well, you know, there are people out there to be reached. You have to send somebody, so pick out someone you can spare and send him or send her. The Holy Spirit doesn't think that way. Holy Spirit says, pick the best. And if you listen to me, that's what I'll do. I'll pick the very best. I have a version of this which I sometimes share when I'm talking in seminaries, and it goes like this. It has to do with the way we evaluate different positions in the church. We tend to think if a young man is coming up through seminary and he is of average gifts that he should perhaps pastor a church. And if he has slightly above average gifts, he should pastor a big church, but if he has exceptional gifts, he should be a professor in a school of theology. And I like to say in those schools of theology that actually that's not the way it should be, that the people in the schools of theology should be less gifted and the most gifted men should be in the pastorate. That's where they should be. Now, I've said that many times in many different places. I must admit, however, when I come to this, I sense that perhaps I've only seen half of the story. If you're speaking of the most gifted people, those who have the most outstanding gifts for teaching, evangelism, administration, and strength, and adversity, and all those things that go into making someone so strong and effective in Christian work, then it's true, is it not, that they should go into world missions. And then after that come the pastors, who I might say are pretty close to that or ought to be in their ability. And after that, somewhere far down the line, you have the professors of theology, many of whom, at least in the schools I attended, I didn't think a great deal of anyway. Now, I think, although I'm exaggerating it, that perhaps we have an insight here into the mind 
of God. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, says the Holy Spirit, for the work to which I've called them. Well, one more thing about the Holy Spirit before we moved on. We've seen that the Holy Spirit called these men. Notice that he didn't just call them, he went with them as they went. We see that very clearly because later on when they run into trouble in Paphos in connection with this man who stood against them, we're told in verse 9, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that nice to know? You didn't know that, you know, you wouldn't dare go out and attempt to do the work of a missionary because missionaries go by definition to places where the gospel is not heard. And where the gospel is not heard or has not been heard, life is dark and the opposition is strong and the antagonism to the God of the scriptures is intense, expressed quite often in opposition and hatred of the missionary. How would anybody dare to do that unless the Holy Spirit is along? You see, if the Holy Spirit has called us to the task and goes with us as we go and empowers us for the work, well, then we can go. And we can say, I will not fear what man will do to me because God is leading. And if God is leading, God will bless. So that's the way it is so far. Here we have the church, the tool, and then we have the Holy Spirit who's going to use this tool in the task. Now it's the task to which we come. That's the last thing. Most of this section that we've been reading is about it. It's about this missionary work on Cyprus. Cyprus was an island, a large island, lay off the coast of Turkey to the south or west from Antioch, and it's the place from which Barnabas came. I don't know if that was part of their decision to go there, but it may very well have been. Barnabas may have said, I know the island. It would be a good place to start, and I know many, many cities that have never heard the gospel. Oh, it's true. There are and a few people that perhaps have gone there, but it needs to hear the gospel. So let's go there. Let's start out in that direction. And so they did. They took a ship sailing from Seleucia, the port near Antioch on the coast, to Cyprus, arriving at Salamis. It was the city closest to Seleucus on the east. And then They traveled from there all the way across Cyprus, going westward until they came to the direct opposite side of the island, to the west and to the south, to this town, Paphros. Now, I suppose that as they traveled, they spoke, and as they spoke, people believed. But Luke is a great historian, and he's not interested merely in chronicling a long list of names for our benefit, names of people that we wouldn't know or understand. What he wants to do is encapsulate a little bit of what the work on Cyprus was about. And so instead of telling us what happened in Seleucus and the little village outside of Seleucus and the little town after that and the town after that, he tells us about one incident here in Paphros, and it becomes sort of an open window into what was going on in this first great attempt to bring the gospel to a new area of the world. We see a number of things, and the things we see here become characteristic of what happens from this point on throughout the entire book. We see in the first place an opportunity, and then we see opposition, and then we see the empowering of the missionaries or preachers of the gospel to meet the opposition, and finally we see the blessing or the success that God gives. Now, in this case, the opportunity was the invitation from Sergius Paulus to have them come and speak to them from the Word of God. That was a great opportunity. This was the first great missionary effort, and already 
Here in the town of Paphras, this man, Sergius Paulus, who is the head of the entire province, asked them to come and speak about the gospel. You know, we read that word proconsul, and it doesn't mean a lot to us. In some of our minds, it might suggest mayor, but he was more important than a mayor. It might suggest councilman, but it was more than that because there are many councilmen. There's only one proconsul. A proconsul was a head of an imperial province, a senatorial province, one that was responsible to the Senate and which the Senate of Rome ruled. Now, there's an interesting detail here that speaks about the historical accuracy of Luke as an historian. This island of Cyprus had been annexed by Rome as part of its empire in 57 B.C. Rome occupied it, and then after it was settled, in part at least settled to the liking of Rome, it became part of the greater province of Cilicia, which was to the north, that is, on the southern coast of Turkey. That happened in 55 B.C. After that, it was made a separate province. That happened in 27 B.C., and during all that time, it was responsible to the emperor. Now, when an emperor ruled a province, he always had a man who was responsible to him, an imperial legate. But now, in the year 22 B.C., the rule of Cyprus passed from direct rule by the emperor to rule by the Senate, as I have indicated. And when that happened, the man who was in charge of the province was no longer an imperial legate, which spoke of his relationship to the emperor, but he was a proconsul, which spoke of his relationship to the Senate in Rome. And so, you see, it's no accident, but a token of great accuracy on Luke's part that when he describes this man and gives his title, he describes him as the proconsul. Cyprus was ruled by a proconsul at the time of Paul's visit, but not for all those many years prior to 22 B.C. So here you have accuracy on the part of Luke, and here you have a great and very important man asking to hear the gospel. So there's the opportunity. And then there was the opposition. This man whose name was Elymas, or who was also called Bar-Jesus, man who gave out that he had prophetic ability. There were lots of people like this floating around the ancient world. They would get into positions of power because they would pretend that they had special insight into what was going to happen. They would go through all the rights of their craft, and then they would advise those who had to make decisions which way to go. And this man apparently had done that. And then along come Barnabas and Saul. They're preaching another gospel. And this man recognizes rightly that if Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, begins to give attention to them, his days as an influential person on Cyprus are numbered. And so he begins to oppose the gospel, does everything he can to turn the proconsul from listening to it. And here is where the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is mentioned in a special way. We're not to think, of course, that the Holy Spirit was not with Paul and Barnabas earlier. Certainly he was. He had been with them in their choice to be sent, and then he had accompanied them in their travels, and he had blessed their witness earlier. Undoubtedly, other people had become Christians, and churches had been established. But here in a special way, with this special opposition, the Holy Spirit fills Paul, and Paul speaks in a powerful way to voice God's judgment on this man. Now, he calls him a son of a devil. That's because the name he went by was Bar-Jesus, which meant son of Jesus. 
Jesus was a popular name. It doesn't necessarily refer to Jesus Christ, though it may refer to Jesus Christ. The gospel was spreading by this time. If this man was taking a name that indicated that he was somebody important, he might, in a superficial way, have taken the name Son of Jesus. That is, there was that prophet who lived in Nazareth and was crucified over there long ago. I'm in that line. Why? I can prophesy the same way he did. At any rate, that's the name he gave himself, and that's what he put out that he was. And now Paul speaks and says, you are actually the son of the devil, not Bar-Jesus, but Bar-Devil, because you're opposing the work of God. And he pronounced a judgment on him that he was going to be blind for a time, and so he was. He was unable to see until later, because it indicates it was temporary, God gave him back his sight. This made a great impression on the proconsul, as well it might. And the story concludes by saying, immediately, speaking now of the sorcerer, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, or he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. A number of the commentators question the nature of that belief. They say, after all, there's a kind of belief that is mere impression. There is the kind of belief that the devils have and aren't really saved. They wonder whether the man was actually saved. They say we don't have any evidence of any change in his life. Well, of course we don't. Not much is told about him at all. These missionaries move on. We're going to see more about their journey. I think there's no reason to doubt that he really did believe that he was saved. He heard the gospel, responded to it, and so became, along with others, the nucleus of a church which was founded there and has endured all down through the ages, even to the present time. When we come to the end of the story, we've seen the church. It was the tool that God used. We saw the power and initiative of the Holy Spirit to use that tool, and then we saw the task. We saw how God blessed in it. There's just one more thing I'd like you to see by way of conclusion, and that concerns Paul. In the middle of the story, verse 9, Paul is called Paul for the very first time. Before this, he was Saul, Saul being his Hebrew name. Now he's called Paul, Paul being a Roman name. And perhaps for that reason, this is the start of the missionary enterprise. Paul is leading it. He's going to be the great missionary to the Roman world. Perhaps that's the reason. But there is an interesting change here that goes beyond that. If you look back to verse 2, you'll find the words Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit said, separate for me, Barnabas and Saul. You'll find in verse 7 that when Sergius Paulus sent for them, he said, send for Barnabas and Saul. And then in the verse to which I called attention, Saul becomes Paul. And in verse 13, it says, Paul and his companions. And if you go over further to the end of the chapter to verse 42, you find the words Paul and Barnabas. There's an inversion of the two names. You see, at the start of this, Barnabas was the leader. He had been in the faith longer, and he was very effective. He was the one that recruited Paul. But the time came as God worked sovereignly in these two men's lives. Paul became the leader, and after that, it's Paul and Barnabas, and not Barnabas and Paul. It's a case of the lesser becoming the greater, I suppose, and the greater becoming lesser. But I mention it for this reason. Paul had been a very long time in second place or 10th place, or the 100th place, whatever it was. 
He had been converted in Damascus, and it was a powerful conversion, and he undoubtedly spoke about it. The text tells us he did, and he began to preach to the Jews, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was indeed the Christ, and he did, and that was blessed. But you know, by this time, many, many long years had gone by. Paul himself writes about it in his letter to the Galatians much later, and he says it was three years He'd already even got up to Jerusalem to meet Peter, something we've seen here earlier in the book. So those three years went by, and then he wasn't received well in Jerusalem, and he went back to Turkey, to his hometown of Tarshish, and perhaps he was active there, but he faded from sight. People had almost forgotten about him, and Barnabas was the only one who remembered and went to get him. And as people try to put these things together, adding years to it, it was perhaps about seven years spent in that. So you see, by now... Ten years have gone by, and there were two years here with the work in Antioch, and so perhaps that's two more, twelve years. And Paul had already been active and well on his way and a success, a rising star in Judaism before any of that happened. So here's a man who is getting well on in the middle age. I'd said he was going to be a great missionary to the Gentiles, but all these years had gone by, and he hadn't been called, and he hadn't been used. He was just Paul, the one who formerly had persecuted the church. But you see, at last the call came. All the years of preparation came to a fulfillment, and Paul began in the power of God to lead this enterprise to which God himself had set him apart. Now, many of you may be yet in a time of preparation. Don't cut it short. Don't worry about that. We talk about missions, and it's very important. Don't give up on that, but don't give up on the time of preparation either. The thing to do is keep close accounts with God. Stay close to God. Study, learn, serve, do all you can, and it may well be that in the years to come, we're going to look back to a time just like this and say, there was John Smith, there was Mary Jones, there was Bill, Lewis, whoever it may be, somebody that we weren't even paying much attention to at the time, somebody who was just preparing, but somebody whom the Holy Spirit obviously called, set apart to a work and led and equipped and empowered and blessed. And we're going to say, glory be to God. That's what missions is all about. Missions doesn't bring glory to the missionary. Missions brings glory to God because it's his enterprise and it's his work from first to last. Let's pray. Our Father, we look at the carriages in the Bible and we want to see ourselves as them in the days of their success, of their greatest blessing. We like to think of ourselves as Paul standing on an outcropping of rock in Athens, proclaiming the message to the Greek philosophers, or Peter in his greatest moments, that we forget that these men had long years of preparation, and all of them, Barnabas was an example, quite willing to take the second or the third or the tenth place, and only moving forward as you led, but when you did lead, stepping forward powerfully. Father, we would pray that you would use these years in many lives represented here, especially the lives of the young. Use these years in fervent, effective preparation. And do us, we pray, the the privilege and give us the joy of calling many of them 
and setting them apart to this great missionary task and blessing them so that others, years from now, will look back and say, isn't it wonderful that they were called? But even more than that, isn't it wonderful how the Holy Spirit blessed? And glory will be given to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Reverend Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1 800 488 1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.